somebody die. <laughs> Sorry, cut all of that. Welcome to the Books We Love, the podcast of the Detroit Public Library. Today we have a very special guest from our youth services department, Marielle. Hello. And today we are talking about Twin Peaks, the TV show. Marielle, would you let us know a little synopsis if there's someone listening who has never seen it, doesn't know anything about it? Oh, I should say, um, Amanda has requested that we're that we do a spoiler free app. Thank you. Because she has not watched it yet and she sucked in. We're on uh, episode five. Which you're halfway done with the first season now, and then you get prepared for crazy banana pants. It's already banana (laughs) pants crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So Twin Peaks um, is difficult to describe to people because it is simultaneously the best and worst thing anyone's ever witnessed on television. Mm -hmm. Um, And before I go on, I do want to say I'm very prone to hyperbole. Um, (laughs) It's, you know, something about me. Mm -hmm. Um, But Twin Peaks is truly one of the most bizarre things that has been on television in recent decades and remains so despite um, many things in the last even five years that have been pretty wild. Squid Game, looking at you. Mm. but it is basically a Pacific Northwest Gothic uh, in which a girl turns up murdered in a small town and the FBI becomes involved. Um, and then you are pitched into a two-season-long fever dream uh, during which you never really understand what happens or what is reality. Um, so if you hate that kind of thing, because I know a lot of people who are fans of horror and mystery do not like ambiguity. Mm. Um, that is my favorite thing in horror and mystery. I do love a formula sometimes, but most often I do not. Um, so if you're not a fan of that, you might hate it. But um, if you do like those kind of things, that is uh, something that you might enjoy. And that's all I'm going to say about a synopsis because it's better to be a little yeah, vague about this one. Yeah, I think yeah. you're right. There's lots of, it's a genre bending. There's, I mean, truly genre bending. There is... I've heard it um, called noir. I've heard it called horror. I've heard it called sci-fi. I've heard it called all kinds of different things. It just refuses to be defined. Amanda, you're, you're bubbling. I am because <laughs> I actually was going to share this. I read this article called How Twin Peaks Invented Modern Television by James Parker. And this was in the Atlantic um, 2017. And this is how he described it. He said, luscious and secretive as a fog bank. Twin Peaks, um, with its unprecedented stew of occultism, irony, horror, deadpan, soap opera, canned narrative, dream logic, burningly beautiful young people, and postmodern diddling, diddling about, diddling, that's a hard word to say, diddling about. Olivia's laughing at me because I'm making the stupidest face I know. <laughs> no, I'm just thinking I'm about trying to say diddling about. <laughs> they are, what did oh, you say? They, what kind of young people? Burningly beautiful? Burningly beautiful they young are. people. They are. That's another yeah. thing is that like you watch it and everyone is like simultaneously Pretty. ugly and beautiful and it's yeah. like incredible. Like the image of Sherilyn Fenn like smoking a cigarette in the girl's bathroom is like mm-hmm. fully Her iconic. when she's dancing by herself, I was like, oh, oh yeah. this is weird but interesting. <laughs> Yeah, they're very striking looking, and we should say this ran the the Twin Peaks like 
first couple of seasons, two seasons, right? Ran two seasons, two and then seasons. it was canceled. Right, from 1990 to 1991, and you can kind of see that in the fashion, but it's also kind of timeless. They have, like, yeah. some of them wear, like, 50s-looking outfits. Yeah, yeah, it's small-town 50s in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Is yes. that very bizarre kind of time-warp feeling you get from watching it. Um, well, the guy with the trench coat that um, Dale Cooper wears that trench coat, which reminds me of like old noir movies. I was like, oh, they're like hitting everything. And yeah, Kyle MacLachlan, like just being Kyle MacLachlan. I mean, and crazy if when he boops the sheriff's nose. I looked at my husband. I'm like, did I just imagine that? That was so random. And the <laughs> sheriff giggles. I was like, this is my husband's theory is everybody's on some type of drug. <laughs> and because the behavior is so bizarre and and. What's his name? David Lynch works in so many weird detail shots without people. And then he always has this weird stuff going on in the background. I told my husband, I was like, you know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of watching Willy Wonka, the original one. And they're interviewing the guy on TV is talking about the Wonka bars being hidden. And you see the street vendor behind him with a cart full of axes and knives. And I didn't catch it for (laughs) like 20 years. And then I finally caught it. That's how I feel watching this show because you have to pay attention to all the weird crap in the background as much as what's (laughs) happening in the foreground, right? Yeah. You didn't make it too far Full disclosure. Yeah, full disclosure. (laughs) Okay, if this is your favorite show, there's no judgment. judgment. I'm just a baby. Like, there's only so much horror I can take before I get too nervous. And then I take to Wikipedia and YouTube and watch full synopses (laughs) of everything. And that is what I did in this this case. But um, I did do a bunch of research about uh, some ideas around the show. But before we get into any of that, Marielle, why do you love this show? Or why did you pick it? Yeah. So my fiance and I just did a rewatch. Um, I saw it for the first time in college with a friend who loved it more than anything. Um, shout out Joey. I think the first time that I watched it, I was so sucked in by the bizarrity of it that I didn't really catch the the real tragic beauty of it. Um, and then so this this last time rewatching it, and also sorry to Twin Peaks heads out there, I have not watched the third season yet because there is a third season that came out just a few years ago that kind of, it's, you know, it's Twin Peaks The Return. Um, and I've been told um, that a lot of things I'm still having questions about about the original has been answered in this mm. third season. So I haven't seen it yet. But I think watching it in this post-COVID world especially, um, the fact that it is about grief and unresolved grief and especially women's pain um, is something that hit really hard this time. Um, And I've been reading a lot of thrillers and mysteries lately that also have to do with very similar things. And I just found it so, it it hit me so differently than it did the first time. And, you know, it's really about murdered girls and and the sense of voyeurism and all of these things. And even under all of these layers of, you know, supernatural weirdness and yeah, maybe everyone is on drugs and all of these things. It is ultimately a story about grief and what it does to people and how, Mm -hmm. especially in a really insular community where you have this town of Twin Peaks that's, you know, very small, everyone knows everyone in each other's business, you know, what that kind of grief does to an insular community like that. Kind of reminds me of, I rewatched the Studio Ghibli movie Kiki's Delivery Service mid-COVID, and I was, like, sobbing for the first time ever watching it after having seen it a million times before, but realizing, like, oh, my God, this movie is about depression. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I find it's it's one of those things that I've watched now post-COVID that really has change the way I look at it. And and what you said, Mando, about how it just is so bizarre. I think it's so interesting to watch it if you haven't seen other David Lynch pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, because Which if we you're, have not. 
if you're familiar with his work, it's like, you know, it's Eraserhead and it's um, the rabbits and it's Blue Velvet and all of these like incredibly bizarre things that mm-hmm. is like his signature, just his signature. But, yeah. you know, this was a show that was on primetime, like network television, ABC, mm-hmm. and viewers were like, what the heck is this? Yeah. Um, oh, I bet. <laughs> and, and that pilot was like an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah. So I'm sure it sucked people in in such a hard way. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because, like, my parents were people that watched it back in the day, and they're big David Lynch fans, but, um, you know, it was very weird for them because my mom was expecting a more straight-ahead narrative, and that's yeah. not what it is. Yeah, <laughs> and so it's really interesting. That I want to talk a little bit more about that because this happens in book club a lot when we have a, a mm-hmm. book club, and I remember we read The Snow Child. Have you ever read that? No, but it's no. been on my list for a long time. It's a beautiful book, but it weaves a lot unanswered at the end there's that sort of magical realism quality where Mm -hmm. it seems ostensibly like something sort of supernatural is going on but it isn't a fantasy it isn't a sci-fi and so people who read it are sort of confronted by that and they're expecting this sort of straightforward thing and then it feels like the rules change and and sometimes that can be some people loved it in book club and some people did not love it. They wanted to know whether or not, you know, there was fantasy elements or not. Like, what are the rules of this narrative? And that is something that, like in writing class, they'll teach you that if you're writing a fantasy, you have to know what the rules are and you have to explain them at the beginning. And magical realism is, I think, sort of subverts those expectations Mm -hmm. and breaks those rules. I I find that sort of fun. No rules, just right. You like that, I love it. I love it. (laughs) How do you feel, Amanda? I don't care for magical realism. That's probably one of my least favorite um, genres. Like I tried to read, wouldn't you say Nightingale and the Bear was magical realism? Have not read it, so I don't know. I think it is, right? What is that one? Uh, I can't (laughs) describe it. It came out in like 20, I bought it when I was in Ohio. So maybe 2013, 2014. I can't, can't even describe it, but magical realism isn't my jam. I'm glad people enjoy it. I just can't always get into certain elements, but I do what I do like what I was kind of making that face at you, Olivia is I do like that about this show. I don't know what the rules are still because Mm -hmm. he keeps, if there is, if there's a playbook or a rule book, he keeps changing the rules. Like, so I've told Olivia this, but you know, podcast secret. We don't always read the full books because we don't always have time. And there are some books that we've covered on here and shows that I don't like them. So I'm not going to commit a ton of time to it. We do as much research and reading and all that kind of watching as we can. So I was telling Marielle, I think a week or two ago, I tried to watch a show when I was single and lived alone. And I was so scared (laughs) because the, there is something that happens by a, um, railroad tracks and I lived with railroad tracks right behind me and I was rural Ohio and living alone and that show scared the hell out of me so much three three episodes and I stopped watching this so I was telling my husband I'm like oh we have to watch Twin Peaks I'm like we'll just watch the first episode and he's like oh my god it's an hour and 40 minutes I'm like we're just gonna watch this and then we're gonna stop so I can at least say that I watched it then four episodes later, it's like one thirty in the morning I'm like oh my god I want to keep watching but I can't keep my eyes open it is so you got pulled in. You get pulled in because it's bananas. Like my husband keeps looking at me and being like, this is insane. Yeah. And I'm like, do you hate it? Do you want to stop watching it? Cause I'll just keep watching by myself. And he's like, no, I'm so sucked in. I have to see what's going to happen. But crazy stuff will look, will happen. And we look at each other and he's like, oh my God. And I'm like, I know, like you never see certain things freaking coming your way. 
There's, yeah, yeah magical I mean, realism. Well, and that's what I love about David Lynch, especially, is that you were saying before, he often has these um, shots of, like, an empty background, yes. or it's a hallway, or it's whatever but it is. But everything has meaning. You just have to figure out what it means. Well, and I have this thing very much with magical realism, or um, kind of that ambiguous mm-hmm. horror kind of thing, where I feel like you don't always need to know what it means on like an articulatable level, but mm-hmm. you kind of feel something intrinsically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like, again, I love that kind of thing and not everybody does, but um, that's like something that's contemporary art sometimes too. Oh, like sure. Experimental poetry. Like yeah. some people are like, well, what does it mean? What is it supposed to be? And, and some people just get it. They just like, this makes me feel. Yeah. It like evokes something. Whatever. Yeah. It, mm-hmm. yeah. But with his, um, you know, with David Lynch, his his greatest skill to me, like as if you're going to call him like a horror mm-hmm. um, person, is that he can make literally nothing terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, like his movie uh, Mulholland Drive, there is this famous scene um, that there is a dumpster sitting in the back of a diner and it is broad, sunny daylight and he is just zooming in on his dumpster. And you know that like something's going to be behind the dumpster and like what it actually is, is scary, but not really that scary, but it's the leading up to it. And just Mm -hmm. this blank shot of this dumpster that is so terrifying. And that is his greatest skill. I think as, as just a filmmaker and a, the scene where the mom is keeps having these weird flashes of what Mm -hmm. she thinks her daughter saw and she's in a room by herself and, or she's in a room with someone else talking and she happens to just look up and there she sees this man in the corner. I screamed so loud. I simultaneously screamed and like punched my arms forward. And (laughs) even my husband was like, Whoa, it's like, you do (laughs) not see this coming. I I really, yeah. I'm very like a freeze. I I don't. Well, and Sarah Palmer is terrifying one of the best characters in that whole show. And she's so overlooked sometimes, I think. Um, But all of the moms in this show, as you'll Mm -hmm. keep seeing, are like wild. And a friend of mine said recently, because I was saying to him, like, did you know that this character is this famous person's mom and blah, blah, blah. And he was like, yeah, it's all about the moms. There's some (laughs) famous last names like Deschanel. Yeah. uh, Donna's mom is Zoe Deschanel's mom. Going back to what you said earlier, Marielle, about... um, grief and especially like the role of women in this show. I I wanted to ask somebody else what their take on this was. So there is, I think it's episode four is the funeral. So we know from the beginning from season um, episode one, that it's a teenager that has been murdered. Laura Palmer. Laura Palmer. And um, there's a scene where they're at the funeral and obviously you're seeing all these different townspeople responding to the funeral and maybe their own grief, the dad gets, and I was asking Scott, so there's these scenes where the doctor, there's a nurse or someone with them that keeps medicating the parents because they're so hysterical. And I'm like, what the hell are they giving the parents? Because the dad's like in this crazy, whatever, but the dad during the funeral dives on top of the coffin and the mom shouts, don't ruin this for me too. And I'm like, Ooh, I want to deep dive into what all, and maybe that's covered in later episodes, but I was like, whoa, holy banana pants. Like You'll get more Leland. Okay. Okay, that's all you need to say. That's the dead girl's dad is Leland. So yes, there's Leland a Palmer, lot. iconic man. A lot um, to unpack. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's for me, the reason that I love um, magical realism and when people play with genre in this way, um, especially in like science fiction or horror or these kind of things is where I, I think sometimes 
when you are exploring a topic like grief or like mm-hmm. um, just murder and or or women's rights or women's wrongs, whatever it is, like it's when you isolate this thing that has mm-hmm. become so familiar to people and you put it in this um, this new setting or this new framework that is really unfamiliar to someone, it kind mm-hmm. of hits in a way that is so different and I think gives you like a different framework for just understanding that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's a River Solomon book um, called An Unkindness of Ghosts and it's about this um, generational starship that is like thousands of years away from a dying earth and it has been modeled essentially after like antebellum South. Um, mm-hmm. And it is a literal vertical social strata in which wealthy white residents of this ship are at the top levels mm-hmm. and black residents are at the bottom. And they are essentially sharecroppers in this like fake field. And there is something about the um, racialized violence that is committed against these people in this totally foreign and new context that makes it that fear kind of and that just anger at these things happening kind of feel new Mm -hmm. because we've learned about the civil war and antebellum south so Mm -hmm. much and it's like people become desensitized to these things and putting it in that context makes it so much more frightening so that's how i always feel about shows like this where it's like you don't know what's happening it's bonkers Mm-hmm. But there are these very real things being said about grief. Right. Yeah. I love that too. And it makes me also think about Big Fish. Have you ever yes, seen it? Yes, I, I still haven't. Movie. Okay. So that's the only Tim Burton movie I will watch. I love, love, love Big Fish. It was Daniel Wallace who wrote it. Um, and he writes some kick in magical realism. But there's a, a scene where, so the, the basic gist of Big Fish is that the son is trying to tell his father's story and the father is a real like tall tale teller and my grandfather was Mm -hmm. like that too every of his stories you said hyperbole um at the beginning marielle and his all of his stories we just understood them to be lies but they were just exaggerations of the truth absolutely because he loved story and he um what i came to understand and what the character in big fish comes to understand is that the way his father is telling the story is a way of illustrating something that he can't otherwise put into words so yes the Helena Bonham Carter character, uh, she had a relationship with um, the father. And in the movie, um, she lives in this sort of dilapidated old yeah. house. It's sort of falling apart. It's like crooked. Mm-hmm. And what you understand by the end of the movie is that her grief at having lost this lover of hers is so intense and so big that it actually shifts the foundation of her house, yes. which obviously isn't true, true, quote unquote true, but it feels true. And it's the only way to really understand what's going on inside of her. It's this mm-hmm. like yeah. externalized illustration of it. And cause you can't otherwise put it into words. So it has to be this like, um, changing the rules of the, of the real world. That's what I was just looking for something I had said to my friend while I was doing this rewatch because I'm a lot more eloquent in writing. Mm. Um, But, you know, I had said, I think the reason I'm feeling this grief aspect so much more potently on this rewatch is because, A, I've experienced a lot more grief in my life since the first time that I saw it, Mm -hmm. um, for one thing. And then, you know, it's, you know, without giving away too much, Mm -hmm. you know, there were 
aspects of this show that David Lynch intended, David and Mark Frost, I should say, people always do this. We forget about poor Mark Frost, mm-hmm. who is just as much a part of the show as David Lynch was, mm-hmm. if not more, because David did leave for a period of time during the second season, which is why it gets so nearly unwatchable. Have fun. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> But there were aspects of this that they intended to never have answered or that kind of thing. But, you know, again, they're on ABC in 1990 and people didn't know what to do with that. So the network was very much like, no, you you have to answer these questions. You can't leave this thing, whatever. But, you know, I think in their intentions, it's and I had said, like, it's the supernatural and like metaphysical aspects um of this narrative add to the real world feeling that grief itself is incomprehensible mm-hmm. and that it's not something that can be experienced by a rational mind or a, um, even just, you know, cause when you are in that like deep in grief and, and nothing feels normal, right? you know, and it's like that idea of like the house shifting, like reminds me of like a poem that I had written, like after my grandma had died and, you know, I, talked about like the house settling into itself that's like the exact same thing and it was Mm. yeah because it is it's not something that you can adequately explain in words because no words that we have can ever fully explain what that process is like right so you have to illustrate it like your world is so changed and this thing is so um uncomprehensible incomprehensible incomprehensible that your house shifting on its foundation is just as likely as this feeling that you're having like both are equally strange yeah just because one is happening inside you they're both bananas Mm -hmm. have you ever seen this is a tangent but have you ever seen the alpinist it's a documentary Uh Okay, have you heard of Free, what is it? Free Solo? Free Solo, yeah. Mm -hmm. My friend met that guy. Yeah, so that guy's in this alpinist. So there's this other rock climber guy, and he was this, like, beautiful climber, and he climbed, and what's-his-face, Free Solo, Alex, whatever guy was in it, and he said that he's just, like, the way that he climbs is just like beautiful he just never hesitated he never had to like stop and lunge his hand up he just like just fluidly just climbed up the yeah just without pause just climbed and it was he was one of those people that from when he was a teenager he had to have that like to feel alive he had to have that level of adrenaline in him and his Mm -hmm. mother was very supportive of him and let him and i don't want to spoil it for you but he dies doesn't and he fall? He falls. Oh, yeah, I remember Alaska. hearing about this. And his, they interview his girlfriend, who he was majorly in love with and who loved him. And you see her, they interview her. And I, I watched this like maybe a couple years ago, and I think about it all the time. She said, um, I just didn't know life could be that painful. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was just such a beautiful thing. Like until you've experienced that level of loss, I think she says in the thing too, like you just go about your life and you don't know what's possible. You don't know that what grief feels like you don't know. Mm -hmm. And then it happens. And then your whole life after that is different. You understand this loss that you could never have, never have understood before. And, um, that's bleak, but this show's bleak. There's, (laughs) it's very bleak. I mean, it's so, I think what I appreciate that about it is that it is so funny yeah because it's so random. it's insane it's so funny and you know you have you have the character of bobby who is like you know the classic 
football jock with like maybe some dark Chip on his shoulder. On, yeah. who is you know the floppy hair leather jacket and he's laura palmer's boyfriend and of course mm-hmm. they're like well did you kill her and you have you know these characters at the diner and you have the log lady and these like goofy oh things God. i love she's log the lady. best um rest in peace she died recently that actress mm-hmm. um but it's it is so funny but it's again it's there are just moments of true bleakness. Like even just like, you know, the, the juxtaposition of, of Dale Cooper being, ah, damn fine coffee. And like, you know, all this stuff. And, Mm -hmm. and then Sarah Palmer, yeah. Screaming in her living room while being drugged. Um, yeah. Yeah. Terrifying. When you brought it up, Marielle, when you said that you wanted to talk about the show you talked about the idea of like women's pain yeah is there anything you wanted to start off with talking about that this is one of my favorite shows but I also do have I I think some issues with it partly because of when it was made and who made it um so I think you know it's a show that is so much about um female trauma um and about how we conceptualize teen girls in our society and in small towns and in this way. And, you know, because Laura herself is hypersexualized throughout the entire show, because as you're going on, um, you know, this is sort of a spoiler, but also sort of not because it's very clear from the outset that, you know, she has slept with half the men in this town and she was not just dating Bobby. She had this secret romance going on with James and, Mm -hmm. you know, there are all of these things and you start to find out that Laura was not the person that everybody thought she was. And, you know, you have Donna, her best friend who also kind of held her on this pedestal realizing you were not this good girl that I thought you were and that Mm -hmm. I aspired to be. I think in many ways Lynch and Frost were, making a commentary on that, but they also, I think, in in certain ways how we now, you know, we, we put a lot of trigger warnings on, on content that involves dead kids, especially, you know, for obvious reasons and, you know, or for things that involve sexual trauma, those kind of things, but that didn't happen as much then. And I think that in their attempt to show how salaciously we think about teen girls and about female trauma and the murder of women and girls, they really overdid a lot of it. Mm -hmm. Like every main girl in this show is at some point deeply traumatized and, you know, talked about in such a way that is disgusting. And Uh part of me appreciates this. And then the other part of me is like, why did you make us watch this? And that is where like, you know, my piece about, um, you know, voyeurism comes in because this is why, you know, people who are obsessed with true crime and, you know, people who, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating to hear about other people's pain, right? You know, Mm -hmm. this is something that America is obsessed with. Mm -hmm. Um, But even, you know, you have this character of Shelly who is, you know, a victim of domestic abuse. She's painted as kind of an idiot, but she's a victim of her circumstances and of the town as well. And I think that, this is one of those narratives that walks that line so delicately that for some people watching it, they might not get that commentary. And they, and then this is not to like insult anybody's intelligence or media literacy, but just like, because it walks that line. So Mm -hmm. precariously, I guess it, there is, 
it's easy to miss what I what I assume and have always assumed was meant as satire and commentary. You know, there's also there's a movie that is a prequel um, that I won't spoil anything, but it kind of shifts the entire understanding of how you view Laura. Mm. Um, and it's really interesting that that did not come out until after the show had been aired. Mm. So yeah, I've just been thinking a lot about who creates narratives about female trauma and whether or not they are well done and what purpose they serve and what is to be gained from them. Yeah. And who can Mm -hmm. watch it? If, you know, if you are a person who was affected by sexual trauma, would you really be able to watch something where women are just like abused over and over and over? Oh, right. I mean, there are certain people who I think would like the show from an artistic standpoint, but I wouldn't recommend it to them because they know what they've been through. Right. And yeah, I find that really interesting. And I think the whole point of this show to our podcast show is to look back on things that we've loved and oh, like with more clear eyes and understand that art is complicated. And then there are things that we can love about it, but also have Mm -hmm. sort of beef with it too. Um, I was thinking about, okay, so there's another quote from the Bolin article, and she said, all dead girl shows, okay, she talks about the dead girl who refuses to stay dead, which is um, a trope that you see in Pretty Little Liars, even kind of, you see this voice from beyond, Mm -hmm. at least in Pretty Little Liars. Um, Mm -hmm. You also see it in 13 Reasons Why, which I think is really interesting. You get that in Twin Peaks, too, because of Laura's diary. Her diary, right. Which is a main piece of evidence that they return to again and again. There's this voice. Yeah, the, the her body is gone, but her voice somehow is still there. You, s- And it's something about teenage girls, too, that we find that. And I don't have an answer for this. I haven't really thought this through yet. Why do we like that? Why is that so? Is it because we see teenage girls as being secretive and that their lives are, like, you know, behind a curtain? And so we kind of like the idea of snooping? Yeah, I mean... I think one of, one of those things that it can really be easily misunderstood about this show is that, and, and that I don't know what was intended or not, but, you know, it's this um, classic horror trope of, like, well, the girls who have sex, they all get murdered. Yeah. And, you know, as we're finding out about Laura, that she is this hypersexualized kind of mm-hmm. harlot character almost, um, you know, it almost suggests like, well, this is the reason she was murdered because look at what she got herself into. Mm-hmm. But then it's again, it's one of those things like, I don't know if that was a play on that trope and saying, look how crazy this is that we think this way. Mm-hmm. Or if it was just Part another thing in the line of yeah. using that trope seriously. Right. Because we couldn't have a, a Laura Palmer who was having sex joyfully and promiscuously and because that character wouldn't have existed at that time right for Mm -hmm. sure and people wouldn't have understood it and it would have been confusing like clearly there's something troubled about her if she's doing this it's really is sad to think of it that way so it had to be do we have more empathy for them if they're gone I don't know it's very interesting Hmm. to think about um, the sort of femme fatale tradition that this is a part of, too, that she does all this really subversive stuff and she's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's part of it, too, is that the danger is sort of neutralized. Like, it's okay for us to sort of investigate her story because she's neutralized. She's gone. Yeah. She's out of the picture. 
So it makes us feel maybe even a little comforted. Yeah. She's not there. But there are other girls in the story too, right? Who are kind of, who are dangerous in their own way. Oh yeah. I mean, they all at varying points, you know, have, have these moments where, you know, they're all trying to get involved in the investigation. They're all um, doing things that like, you know, everyone around them and that the viewer is automatically deeming as risky, but you know, and then to to David Lynch's credit and, and Mark Frost, like, they are also sometimes the only people that have any idea what's going on and are the only people who are able to see the reality of the situation for what it is. Mm. Um, so I think in that way it has always been, you know, this celebration. Well, celebration is a strong word, but um, like a, you know, a pushing of the idea that, teen girls are not idiots despite you know what they may have gone through and what consequences they may have experienced because of these things or actions they've taken they still have a view into something that maybe we don't and that's yeah going back to what you're saying is like are they secretive is it behind this curtain like yeah maybe but they're also people yeah regardless and they are powerful in the story too like they might be being used they might be being killed and abused but they are sort of they have their own agency in the story Mm -hmm. at least I was thinking about that a lot I went into kind of a deep dive about the history of the noir tradition which I would say um this falls into or at least nods to um so I found it really interesting that noir really picked up after um, World War II, and I read a great article about how it reflected men's anxieties about women being powerful, and we all know after World War II, there was this Rosie the Riveter thing mm-hmm. that had to be squashed, right? Mm-hmm. So it had to be like, get them out of the workforce, they're dangerous, and that's that's that was... Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have to post the... Oh, it was Jack Boozer was the um, film professor who wrote about this, there was also a great, a great, pretty blatant article called How Film Noir Tried to Scare Women Out of Working. So they mentioned that 600,000 women lost their jobs a month after the war ended and 2 million had lost their jobs by 1946. So this was a very real thing that women were being, would either leave the workforce or being pushed out. Um, so that article was in take two and it just kind of goes through noir and this sort of, you know, men are men want them out of the workforce so that they can get their jobs back. So there's this Rosie the Riveter, women are very powerful. And then this rise of noir, you know, powerful women are dangerous. Hmm. And then the neo-noir tradition, which was sort of the, like, Chinatown is a really good example of neo-noir. It happened in the 70s, right after that wave of feminism in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And then Twin Peaks... Um, it was in the 90s, and that was right after, or at least concurrent with Anita Hill and that wave of feminism. So it's really interesting how these noir and waves of feminism sort of intertwine with each other. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't find anything. I'm sure people have written about this, but it just anecdotally, and I'm not a film professor, but I just thought it was really interesting about how afraid we are of women who have agency. Yeah. yeah, and like... They were like, it went as far back as Eve. And like, <laughs> sort of like dangerous woman. And mm-hmm. it is, it's just in our culture. And it's just a part of our culture 
that uh, it's really hard to separate. What do you think, Manda? I think I've talked a lot. I haven't let you talk. I've just been listening. I'm trying to wrap my head around still. Um, when your question of why do we want to know, you know, with with Laura Palmer being dead and there's the interest in her voice from beyond and through her journal, you know, you were saying, um, you know, what's our obsession with that? Getting getting to kind of spy on the life of teen girls. And I I can't wrap my head around what my good answer would be. So mm. I've just been kind of listening to what you've been saying. But um yeah, so I don't have any deep thoughts on that. And I've been thinking a lot as we've been talking about um, the town of Twin Peaks itself. Mm. And I know agent, uh, FBI agent Dale Cooper loves the Douglas fir, Douglas fir so trees. Much. And he loves the damn <laughs> he good loves coffee. loves Twin Peaks. And oh my God, he's had every type of pie while he's there. It was Huckleberry <laughs> in the episode he's last like a night. a golden retriever, but like he a is, like yeah, a, like a dark, so, like an unhinged golden retriever, yeah. and I love him. I say that it's affectionately. So crazy. <laughs> but I've been. I always like to pay attention to. We've talked about this on the podcast before. The idea of a place as a character. So mm. I've been very much trying to figure out what the directors are actually saying about the town of Twin Peaks through the show, through the way that the characters talk about it. Yeah, and it's funny because it's fifty fifty one thousand people ish. And, but it feels very small towny because everybody seems to know each other. And maybe that's just the circle of people that are in the show happen to know each other because of Laura Palmer. But it feels a lot smaller than I'm sure it would be because my husband's like, oh, I thought it was like 5,100 when I saw the sign because it's so small town. And then we rewound it. Yeah, no, it's like the size of like an average suburb. Yeah, Yeah, it's not that small, but. but but it feels so small. Well, and I think it's because it's so isolated, it's, right? Yeah, it's, it's very remote. It's tucked up in Washington. Well, it, if it was real, it's tucked up in Washington State. It's close to the border with Canada. It's And they, you know, they rely on very, like, internal industries and the sawmill becoming yep. this big. And I don't know how, if you've really gotten to the whole sawmill drama subplot yet. They, but Yeah, <laughs> there's some stuff going on there. And we have our theories about where they're going with that. But, yeah, so I've been thinking about just the way that they use spaces and places in the show and, you know, where they find her body was mm-hmm. washed up on the shore. So you have the idea of this, you know, water situation with the city or the town, but then you also have, you know, the more kind of industrial feel of the sawmill. Then you have the railroad car where mm-hmm. they trace back that the bodies had been there of these two girls. And I don't know. And the inn, the inn, there's a oh, yes. kind of bougie inn that they're trying to sell to some Swedes at the beginning <laughs> of the show. And it's just, I'm trying to figure out what all of these things are pointing us towards and the way that they're moving the story. So as well, you were kind of talking about noir, I'm thinking about that too, of just what is our space? What do our spaces and our places tell us about this story? Well, and I love that you mentioned that because like, that's always like kind of the joke trope, right? Mm-hmm. Is like ah, New York City is the character, you know, like that whole thing. And, you know, because Lynch is always so intentional about places, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think there very much is this aspect of, like, Twin Peaks is very much alive in its own way. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, I mean, I think it is that that sense of isolation because you feel like, you know, you have the woods on one side, Mm -hmm. the water on the other side, you know, they're kind of, they're so insular, this community, despite, yeah, being a, a relatively 
big size for like mm-hmm. a small town, whatever. Um, but yeah, it's, it's that sense that nothing else is really getting in or out, even though you kind of learn as you're going that this case is not really an isolated incident mm-hmm. and that, you know, obviously the FBI is here and yeah. there's Cooper seems to think that there's something bigger going on. Yeah. Um, but you, it feels so intense and specific to that town. Yeah. Yeah, and the weather's always bad in the Pacific Northwest. It was yeah. gloomy, and then a forest. Some good scenes with fog, and at night, oh my oh. God, when the guy stepped out from behind the tree with the mask mm. on, I almost peed my pants. I was like, <laughs> I cannot handle this. I was not expecting this. There's another, like, zinger for my heart. In Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, Emily said that the forest was her scariest location yes. because... And I could see why it would be like, that's where secrets go. You can't see anything and you never know what's behind the tree. (laughs) Well, and I think that's too, like just going back to him as a filmmaker in general, what I love about him is that like, I'm, I'm very weird with horror. Like I can't really do classic horror movies Mm -hmm. or well, I guess I can do classic ones that don't have a lot of gore and jump scares, but I can't do, can't do the ring. I can't do the grudge. I can't do like all of that, but I love to read it. And I love when it's presented to me in a way where I know I'm not going to have some massive jump scare. Yeah. But like for me, the thing that is always the least scary about horror or these things is when the monster is revealed. And that's like, you know, everybody knows it's like it stops being scary once you know. Yeah. And the thing about this show is that you just like you never know. Like you never know. And it's so much dread Mm-hmm. built up like over the course of all of these things and even when you think you know you don't know and mm-hmm. I think that's I think existential fear you know we know this is like one of the biggest and most potent fears that people have because it's unresolvable yeah and yeah and we've talked before too about stranging the familiar and how that can be really mm-hmm. scary I rem- I'm having this memory now of my mom telling me she was reading Stephen King and she was having Stephen King-esque nightmares. Ooh. And she said one of her nightmares was simply her walking up the stairs to her bedroom. And she knew something weird was going to be happening when she got into the room. And she turned in. And it was just the hairdryer by itself, like, oscillating slowly what? back and no. forth in the middle of the no. room. And that kind of stuff scares me to my core. <laughs> yeah, I just got chilled. I know. It's like, <laughs> so scary. And all it is is a hairdryer, but it's just like this, your room Yikes. is supposed to be a safe place. Yes. And that anticipation, and then it's something so It's so fitting that you mentioned nightmares right. because we started watching on Sunday, and we watched the first Four episodes, I think. And then we started the fifth last night. We had to rewatch it because we were both falling asleep. Not because it was boring, just long day. But um, I have had crazy dreams <laughs> Sunday night and Monday night. And I wake up and I know it's about the show. Mm-hmm. But I, it, just like the show, I know that there was all this crazy stuff. When I wake up, my husband's like, how do you sleep? And I'm like, I had the craziest dream last night because <laughs> of that show. But I can't say why. I yep. just, it's this sense of dread in my dream. Yep. And I know that's from the show because the whole time I'm watching it, I'm like, shoulders are up. My hands are like, I'm doing like my fists, like balling them up because I'm nervous. I had my knees, like I caught myself during the show. I had been 
sitting on the couch with my legs totally out. So my body was like 90 degree angle. Some scary stuff happened. And I didn't even realize like 20 minutes later, I still had my knees drawn to my chest. <laughs> I was sitting on my hands, which I do when I'm scared. And then at one point I put up my safety triangle, which is how <laughs> I watch the show. I overlap my fingers. So your hand creates this real <laughs> triangle shape. And then I peek through my fingers and my husband's like, really? It's not that scary. I'm like, I am terrified. It's the dread in that show. Yeah. Anticipatory. It's, yeah. It's fear. anticipatory yeah. fear and dread and it's crazy because it's carrying into my dreams now so I will be kind of glad when we're done with this because I want to have you know, some on. unicorn <laughs> dreams or something dragons that I are also I, I very much am someone who starts having dreams when I'm like consuming a lot of a certain type yes. of media this is why I don't read Stephen King <laughs> and when I was when we were re uh, watching this because it was just like a month ago that we finished uh, yeah I was having bizarre dreams like every night of just I don't remember what they were, but I know that they were not good. Dark. The most real dreams I've ever had, nightmares, that I actually still remember. And when I think about them, I'm like, ooh, shudder, was The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil ooh, Gaiman. love that book. That book freaked me out so much. I stress read it in like three nights. And then I had all these disturbing, disturbing It's sweet, nightmares. though. It's like the sweet worm. and happy. Oh, the worm is bad. Yeah. I had a dream that oh. that happened to me. And that's how I woke up, was freaking out. We won't say what happened, but you should read that <laughs> book if you like to be disturbed. Yeah, I want to get to some reading recommendations, but before we do, is there anything else anyone wants to say about Twin Peaks? I think we covered everything I was thinking. I just want to say from a fun like pop culture perspective, one of my you favorite things it. about this show is that it was the cast is made up of either like younger unknowns at the time mm -hmm. or like Hollywood has-beens mm. yes. who have like come into like cult personality status now because of their part in this show, like Richard Boehmer yep. and Russ Tamblin. Like, Is that Amber Tamblin's dad? Yeah. AKA Riff in West Side Story. And oh, Amanda. Oh, I've seen it. I just don't <laughs> remember it. Are you disappointed too? I was watching the show and this will tell you where I come from pop culturally a bit. I was like, oh, she was in Gilmore Girls. Oh my God, she was in Gilmore Girls. <laughs> like oh, see, when Kyle McLaughlin walked on, I was like, that's the guy that was married to Charlotte in Sex in the City. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. I Except got that he too. didn't age well. And he, he was bad in Desperate Housewives. He didn't look right. He was in Housewives. Life. Yeah, he was Orson in Desperate Housewives. I never watched that. He played an evil husband. I watched that movie as a child, or I'm sorry, not movie, show as mm -hmm. a child with my mother. So that's where I'm coming from, <laughs> pop culturally. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, Ben Horn and Dr. Jacoby, that's Riff and Tony from West Side Story. No way. Fun fact, yeah. everybody. Um, These are Jets. Yeah. Yeah. I had to think. I was like, they're Jets the, and the they're sharks. The snappers. Sharks and the Jets. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Neither of them. Jet, Tony is like the main one. Life. He's the one, you know, who sings Maria, Maria. I mean, I've seen it. This all <laughs> rings the bell. We'll have to do that <laughs> next. But we can. Sure. But yeah, I mean, that's that's my fun thing is that I just think everyone in there is like, it's such a bizarre cast and it's so great. Yeah. Yeah, it's, there's a lot to unpack, folks. If you haven't watched it yet, watch it. This came out when I was like in fourth or fifth grade. So I would not have watched it, but my husband was three years older. So he was in middle school and he said he remembers adults talking about it. Mm. Like when it was on, he's like, yeah, it was kind of one of those shows where I remember everyone talking about it. And mm -hmm. I said, it reminded me like watching it now, I can imagine the conversations very much being like who shot, um, 
JR on Dallas. Mm. Like, who killed Laura? Yep. And that was the whole tagline, like, who killed Laura Palmer? And, like, that picture of her is, like, the iconic image. There's a book. It's her diary they released as a book. Did you guys know that? The um, Dave, so. um David Lynch's daughter wrote it. Yeah. Oh, so I don't know when it actually came out, but I was like, after I finish the show, I might be curious to look at that. Yeah. Well, there's also um, a few years ago, Mark Frost published, it's called The Secret History of Twin Peaks, and it's a lot of stuff that was like unanswered or, or kind okay. of um, meta stuff about the show itself that was released. So Sorry, I'm yawning. I... Obviously had Twin Be- Twin Peaks nightmares again last night, so I'm exhausted today. <laughs> Do you have some reader likes, Olivia? Uh, well, when I was doing some reading, one thing that came up was the red parts by Maggie Nelson, right? Okay. Yeah. Oh, Maggie Nelson feels very apt. Yeah, I have some watch-alikes while you're looking that up, Olivia, if you <laughs> no, want I got me it. to go. Got it's it. red parts by Maggie Nelson. Sorry. <laughs> it's not a funny one. I'm going to have to cut that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> somebody died <laughs> sorry cut all of that um, something that came up was the red parts by maggie nelson uh you might know her from either her poetry or her little certain you know her right mm-hmm. like the bluets bluets yeah that sort mm-hmm. of kind of like poems Argonauts. and mini essays kind of hybrid work um but this was actually her sort of true crime book about her aunt who was murdered. So um, it's a very, very thoughtful exploration of that from someone, if you're like me, where you feel a little funny liking true crime because you're like, these are real people's lives or whatever. Mm -hmm. This is from someone who was actually affected by it. I have Mm -hmm. not read this, but it came up when I was um, doing some research around around Twin Peaks, so I thought that might be an interesting one to recommend. I'm sorry, is this a fictionalized account, or this this is nonfiction? Yeah, this is her sort of journalistic exploration oh. of what might have happened. What was it called, The Red Parts? The Red Parts, yeah, by Maggie Nelson. It's a horrifying title. Yeah, it is. I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like it. I don't want to be a pirate. I don't like the title either. <laughs> I'm like, what are the... No, don't ask. Let me see, you want me to see if there's a quote that explains it? Yes. While you're looking for that, my two um, read-alikes. Um, and the reason that I kind of thought of this topic was um, I uh, recently read um, Katriana Ward's new book, uh, Looking Glass Sound. Um, and she wrote, um, she wrote Sundial and The Last House on Needless Street. So she, you know, she's very known for this kind of, that same, you know, creeping dread ambiguous horror kind of stuff um where it's like oh the real monster is the people uh you know and um this newest one is you know about this uh teen boy whose uncle dies and his family inherits its uncle's uh house cottage on the sea in maine in rural maine and so he goes and he makes these friends and this first summer that he spends there is kind of overshadowed by the discovery of um, one of the townspeople has been serially murdering women who have been thought to have just disappeared, um, drowned, you know, off the coast or something. Um, But, and I can't say too much about it because it's one of those books that you have to just experience because there are so many moments of, whoa, what, huh, what, huh? Um, But it's, it makes me think about Twin Peaks a lot because it's, you know, an account of, women being murdered in these horrific ways written by a woman, um, but through the lens of a teen boy. Mm. Um, and 
again, just like looking, examining that, that sense of voyeurism and like, what does it mean to examine dead women and why do we do this? And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, why do people, you know, buy grave dirt from serial killers, victims on the black market? Why do, you know, why, why did people attend lynchings? Like why did people, you know, these, these horrible things in history that people have, gotten excited to be a part of. Um, and so it, it, it's a, it's a very similar idea and it's also this very small town in Maine, which, you know, again, Stephen King's favorite place to write about. Um, so that one is something that gives me that same kind of vibe. And then just tonally, um, uh, Carmen Maria Mikado's, um, you know, incredible, uh, uh, story collection, uh, her body and other parties, um, where it's like, you never know what's happening until you do. And then you're like, oh, I'm going to go lay down for 12 hours in a dark room. Right. Um, but yeah, that just, again, creeping ambiguous dread where that is the biggest thing is the dread and not finding out who the monster is. Right. Mm. That's a great, that's a great really for this. And I think we can all agree that no one should ever go to Maine unless they want to be murdered. Oh my God. No, but Acadia, Acadia is so beautiful. I never once felt like I was Bahaba. Yeah. I just feel like if you get murdered in Maine, you're pretty much asking for it. You could have gone to any other state. Hey, Bar Harbor, Acadia. Just I never once felt like I, I slept in a tiny, tiny tent by my lonesome in Acadia and my friends were in the tent next to me and the whole night I was like, I'm going to be a snack for a bear. I'm like a Chaco taco in this tent for a bear. Yes. I'm going to just repeat what Olivia said because I think it was covered. By she Chaco said that taco. Maine should be called Maine and I'm just going to see you heard it. I a hundred percent did not hear that because I talked over you. <laughs> Please keep that in the recording. There um, is something creepy about that, about in the history of us really wanting to see people being hung or. Yeah. yeah that's it's terrible. My thing with true, true crime, cause I'm a huge true Hanged. crime person is, and this really disturbs my husband. Some of the things that I listen to and watch the documentaries and things. And I told him, my thing is I need to know that some of these people made it out. Okay. Mm. And I need to know how these, the people that do survive, how they troubleshoot out of a situation. Yeah. You like to give survival advice and it just makes me want to crawl in a hole and never come out again. (laughs) Yeah. She did tell me someone was going to throw me in their pickup truck. If I walked close to the road. Yeah. Don't be trunkable. She told us the other day. That's okay. The guy that introduced me to the expression. Trunkable oh, was yeah, like, you, can't. you have to drive to the no, fire station. No, you call the police and tell them where you're at and ask them if that is actually a real cop behind you because bad things happen occasionally. Well, and while I appreciate that, that happened when I was in college <laughs> up in Holly, that guy, some guy had just a cop light and was pulling women over and doing awful things to mm-hmm. them. So call the police if I you're think by we yourself. talked about this, where I think there's some people that want to be prepared and yeah. some people who just want to wait for I am a freaking survivalist. I think that was what we said. We specifically talked about Mando. We said Mando will be prepared and yep. live and Olivia I and I will survive. be I'm dead. not crazy. We'll like I don't, I don't have a basement full of like six weeks worth of canned food and water. I'm not a survivalist <laughs> like that, but I'm like a, if you put me in your trunk or you try <laughs> and try this. and choke me with, uh, from behind in my car, I have skills. You hear that criminals? 
I'm going to know how to get out. Don't. It's not an invitation, <laughs> listeners. I don't want someone to try these things no, on me. No, it's a warning. Yeah. It's, don't it's mess also a warning her. that I tell people, don't surprise me because I am a panic puncher. When I get really scared, yeah. I punch out and it's it's a reaction and I don't, I can't control it. So don't do it. Like when the doctor hits your knee with that hammer, I punch him. I this don't like being startled. A fact I know about you. I've known you for three months and I know that so much yes. about you because you've, you've told me that. Like yes. I think I tell people when times. I first meet them, ha ha ha, we're joking. And don't ever scare me though, because I might actually punch you in the throat. HR has actually advised her to warn us. hundred percent. I was in a haunted maze once and I was linked to arms with my roommate at the time. And a probably, I think I've already told this story on the podcast, a probably 13-year-old in a Jason mask stepped out with a chainsaw, <laughs> and I punched my friend, and I turned into Forrest Gump, and I ran further into the maze, and I turned around, and nobody was with me. It's like that scene where Forrest Gump's in Vietnam, and I had to go back and find people. It's terrifying. Sounds really, that sounds really <sighs> Halloween-ish. We unpacked a lot of stuff here today. No, yeah, this noises. is our unpacking trauma episode. Yeah, it was really it important. Really is. Listeners, what were be your watch-alikes, Amanda? Oh yes. <laughs> so these watch-alikes are actually shows that um, have been inspired by mm. Twin Peaks, and this came from a Rolling Stones article called "20 TV Shows Most Influenced by Twin Peaks," and listen to all the authors that pitched in on this, all the writers. Last names, Tobias, Shearer, Wood, Grierson, Grow, Collins, McIntyre, and Tallarico. So a lot of people pitched in for this. But episodes or shows that I've actually heard of, Desperate Housewives, Bates Motel, Fringe, X-Files, Hannibal, Legion, Lost, Northern Exposure, which I thought was interesting, Um, Veronica Mars, which we mentioned, Picket Fences, Riverdale, Sopranos. There was a bunch more, but those are the ones I actually have heard on. You guys, this was a great episode on Twin Peaks. I loved it. I'm so excited. And I like both of you. Boop, boop. I like you. Boop. All right, let's do another one. Let's do a different episode of the future together. Oh, bye. Amanda, I can't wait to get your WTF text. Thank you for listening to The Books We Loved, a podcast through the Troy Public Library. You can find more information about the books and library services we mentioned in the show on our website at troypl.org slash podcast. If you would like to suggest a topic for future discussion, please email us at podcast at troypl.org. Thank you for listening and happy reading.